Good morning. Happy Easter Day to all of you here as we have this privilege to remember and commemorate the glorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus. In thinking of what to share this morning, I thought, you know, there's a lot of verses that pertain to the resurrection of the Lord. And we could probably fill up the time here just reading Bible verses that relate to that. But I thought I would maybe do some of that, but I want to offer a little commentary as well along the way. But there are a couple verses I would like to read that stood out to me pertaining to the resurrection of the Lord in Acts we have these words speaking of Jesus whom God hath raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. It was not possible. We have that. And then in Revelation, Jesus says, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. So we have many wonderful scriptures that we could look at and believe in and trust in and put our hope in. One thing I was thinking of as pertains to those events in scripture is how the, the many individuals that we, we see their responses to the resurrection, we see how they uh, reacted to the things they saw and heard. And I think indeed it, it is meant to have a, a, a personal impact on our lives. The, uh, the news of the resurrection, that trust and that hope, it, it's a personal response that we are to have that goes along with that on our part. Our Christian faith and our, our walk, indeed, it, it, it is meant to be distinct to us. It is personal to us. And out of that comes the strength of the brotherhood. But, you know, we are, we are individuals. And um, you can see our walk with the Lord may even have a degree of confidentiality. When we enter into the secret place of the Most High, there are things that God maybe shows us and reveals to us that, that we keep to ourselves, we ponder in our hearts because it is deeply personal. And I hope we, we find that in our life as well as the brotherhood. But don't let the brotherhood be your life in the sense that we have to find the Lord for ourselves in our, um, in our efforts, in our pursuits of life in the renewing of their minds day by day. It is an intimate walk with God. You know, when we die, that's a personal thing. The brotherhood doesn't die when we die. Maybe a part of them does, but that is a valley we walk alone. And in the same sense, I think God has established that we find him and connect with him on a personal basis. I thought too of um, 
of maybe perhaps the, the theme for the message this morning. The, uh, the resurrection of the Lord, it was an ultimate demonstration of the triumph of good over evil. This is how evil is defeated. We overcome evil with good, is what we are told. And my mind kind of went to the, the conflict that we have between the powers that be. The resurrection is the greatest demonstration of the triumph of light over darkness. The triumph of love over hate. The triumph of life over death. And thinking how these opposing forces that are at work all through life, it seems, and all through the Bible. We see enough of it in our daily lives and our experiences that I think we just learn to accept it, that we are in a, we are in a, are in a, a clash of systems, that, and we work through that, we, we navigate that. But there are two systems in the world, two that are contrary one to the other, both outwardly and inwardly. In the event of the trial of Jesus and his crucifixion, and I had to think of those evil, the evil that seemed to be present there. And, and there were those words of those who, who reviled him and mocked him there at the cross saying he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. Didn't they know they were quoting the Psalms when they said that? You know, they were accurate in what they said. They were actually prophesying. Let him deliver him. Well, that's exactly what happened. God did deliver him. They were just three days off in their timing. It was their timing that was off. And in a sense, they were prophesying and not even realizing. There was that evil present. We have some, we have some choice to make as regards to our outcome. The decisions we make have the most effect upon what that outcome will be. Most of you have heard this story of, and I'll just say it again, there was a, um, an old Indian man who was telling his grandson about life and describing a little bit what life is like. And He said it's, it's, it's two wolves that are living inside of you, a good wolf and a bad wolf, and these wolves are fighting, they're in conflict. And the grandson asked, well, which of the wolves wins? And the answer was, the one you feed is the one that wins. The one you feed. What are we feeding on? And what are we, who are we rooting for in that scenario there within ourselves? At the time of Jesus' trial, you know, it appeared that evil was gaining ground. It was 
taking authority. It appeared as though the workers of iniquity did flourish. And I wonder how many saw the, the events of Jesus being taken in and captured and bound and thought Jesus can escape. You know, he's done this before and maybe they left that scene. It probably got late. They went to their homes and thinking, you know, Jesus will will be able to escape from that scenario like he always did before. And then to discover later that that no, he was in fact he was killed and um, laid to rest. He was forsaken by his supporters. All his supporters had, had fled. And you think of how could that be? The ones that were healed, the ones that had seen the miracles, where were they? The 70 that had been sent out and came back rejoicing with the authority and the power they had to cast out demons. Where were they? But Jesus went through that time quite alone, seemingly. Maybe it was the sovereignty of God that saw fit that he walked that valley alone. I'm not sure how that was. But there was a um, something that had happened here a couple months ago. We had a Wednesday evening uh, meeting. I forget if it was prayer meeting or, or Bible study, and it was a little bit of a small group, smaller than usual. Usually our evening services are well attended. But I, I was in, in that small group, and we were singing, and the singing was a little bit small, and my mind began to think, well, you know, this could be better. What if this church was just filled up? What if we had cars showing up and coming to our prayer meeting? And you begin to think in lofty terms of what could be. You know, it would certainly have maybe helped the singing. And we were singing the song, I will sing of my Redeemer and his wondrous love to me on the cruel cross he suffered from the curse to set me free. And then I began to think in, in a little smaller way the power that would have been, even our small group, if we could have somehow been in the garden with Jesus at his hour of trial, his hour of affliction, and he could have heard us singing the beauty of that song, even with our small group. You know, would he have liked that? Would he have liked to hear that? I think he would have. And very possibly with his omniscience, he could look forward and see those times in his aloneness at the moment. He could take strength from realizing that this was to be if, if he would follow through, that indeed we could sing those beautiful hymns. Sing, O sing of my Redeemer. With his blood he purchased me. On the cross he sealed my pardon. Paid the debt and made me free. Do you think Jesus would have liked to have heard some singing there in the garden? I think it would have helped him. And he had those three chosen disciples that 
failed to stay awake. I've often wondered, he kind of went back and forth between himself and them and coaching them, encouraging them to remain awake. Did he really want their company or did he want to be alone? And I'm not sure in that. But it seems like maybe they could have supported him a little better. But in thinking of all that, you know, in our in our small ways that we come to God and approach God and it may seem like a small, insignificant thing. But maybe the call on our lives is to, to mind not high things, but to condescend to that of low estate. We often think maybe in loftier terms than we should, but remember that God sees our small. Despise not the day of small beginnings, I believe is, is how one Old Testament passage would bring it to us. Let's not despise the small work that God is doing. That small mustard seed of faith can grow and become a beautiful um, tree bearing fruit to the Lord. And so today we commemorate the life of the risen Lord, the triumphant Lord, the one who made it possible for all these songs to be written, the hundreds and thousands of hymns and songs written on account of the Lord, um, not necessarily Easter songs, but just any, any of the songs and any of the work that goes forth in the church and in the kingdom springs from that day of resurrection. And yet the battle between good and evil, it continues in our world. I believe Satan was dealt a, a severe blow at that resurrection. I believe his kingdom suffered a deadly blow. And the Bible says that Satan goes around as a roaring lion seeking who he, whom he may devour. The reason might be, and I thought of this, if he was wounded, um, what does a wounded animal do? It becomes more vicious. He becomes angry and violent, maybe even more dangerous, depending on who it is. There's a verse in Scripture that would bear this out in Revelations 12, verse 12. It says, Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. But woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the seal and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. It seems like in his knowledge of, of, of his weakness and of being dealt that blow, however that was in the heavenlies and in the spiritual realms, it only activated his, his resolve to become um, even more in, in conflict with the saints and with us in our day. And in verse 7 of that same chapter, it says, There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought at his angels and prevailed not. He prevailed not. Neither was their place found anymore in heaven. I don't know how you put all that together and assemble that in your minds, but my only point is the devil is defeated, but yet he is not extinct. 
And in his condition, he's very active. He was still very much a part of, of the scene and the ongoing struggle that is uh, part of life. Full of wrath. You know, the Bible says there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Possibly that new heaven is necessary because it says there was war in heaven. There was ascension which heaven was tainted or, or made uh, faulty, depending how you would look at that. And the first heaven and the first earth were passed away in John's vision. So I thought I'd talk a little bit yet today about the, this conflict, this struggle between right and wrong, between good and bad. Turn now to Psalms chapter 92. Verse 7. When the wicked sprang as the grass... And when all the workers of iniquity do flourish, it is that they shall be destroyed forever. There's a sense in which the wicked flourish. They appear to flourish. They rise. They seem to gain the upper hand. Now let's contrast that with verses 12 through 15. The righteous shall flourish like the palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bring forth fruit in old age. They shall be fat and flourishing to show that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. We see how the, both the wicked and the, and the righteous flourish. But only the righteous remain. Only their fruit remains that eternal fruit. Psalm chapter 49, verse 13. This, their way, is their folly. Speaking of those that trust in their wealth, those that boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, this, their way, is their folly, yet their posterity approve their sayings. In other words, they have followers. They have, it's like the blind leading the blind. Like sheep, they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them, and the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning. In the morning. And their beauty shall consume in the grave from their dwelling. Verse 15, but God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me, Selah. Jesus could have claimed those words from Psalms. We can as well claim those words from the Psalms, that God will redeem our soul from the power of the grave. And then to be not afraid when one is made rich, when the glory of his house is increased, and so on. The wicked seem to maybe fret us at times, and the Bible says fret not because of the evil workers, workers of iniquity. The wicked seemingly prosper. 
This is also addressed in Jeremiah chapter 12. Verse 1 and 2. Wherefore doth the way of the wicked prosper? Wherefore are all they happy that deal very treacherously? Thou hast planted them, planted them, yea, they have taken root, they grow, yea, they bring forth fruit. Thou art near in their mouth and far from their reins. Near to their uh, to their mouth, to their speech, but far from their minds, far from their hearts, is what that is saying. So it, it must have been speaking of the religious people of that day who spoke well of the Lord, but did not retain them in his heart. I have to think then too of Exodus chapter 7, 1 through 5. See, there in Jeremiah, it says it has the thought that the Lord is building them up. He has planted them. He has established them. Um, why is this? If not in, in, in better to, to smite them later on, and we see that here in that thought brought out here in Exodus 7, where it says, the, the Lord said unto Moses, See, I have made thee a god to Pharaoh, and Aaron thy brother shall be thy prophet. Thou shalt speak all that I command thee, and Aaron thy brother shall speak unto Pharaoh, that he send the children of Israel out of the land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you, that I may lay my hand upon Egypt and bring forth mine armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch forth my hand upon Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. We have how the Lord seems to, to raise up evil to the extent that he can then come and, and wipe them out um, in a better way. Kind of like a lawnmower blade is shaped to where it creates vacuum suction. And that suction pulls the grass up and then the blade comes along and cuts that off. Is that the principle God is bringing forth concerning the wicked? He wants them to know that he is the Lord, he says. I don't think that acknowledgement is the same as repentance. But God still wants to impress upon the wicked that he is God and that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord and that God is able to find out their sin and expose the sin and make it evident. It doesn't mean they are repentant. But that is a choice we need to make in light of all the above. There's an interesting thing said concerning evil in Genesis 15. Verses 13 through 16. I'm just going to bring this out and, and um, you can decipher this for what it is, and God is speaking to Abraham um, how they will serve 
in a, in a strange land. And he says in verse 14, also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. What is God speaking of there? It seems like he is waiting for sin to um, sort of take its course and, and run a course that it is um, set up to, to where a, a measure of that is reached and then that triggers the hand of the Lord. And I had to think of that in relation to what we see in our day. It just seems like things are escalating in the wrong direction in the affairs of the world. First Thessalonians 2.16 talks about the filling up of their sins. Like there's a cup of iniquity that needs to be filled and then God will take action. And I just see all of that in, in light of what's happening and, and how, what our perspective should be concerning um, light and darkness in our world today. It's time for God to arise. We say this in our prayers. God arise and his enemies be scattered. Why isn't that happening? Why don't we see that maybe a little more pronounced? I have a, uh, a picture in my mind of, of something I've done before where um, cattle are, are kind of a curious creature. And I've played around with, with when I'm out in the, uh, in the field with cattle and, and pretend I'm just standing there and they get curious and they'll, they'll come closer and closer. Now, cattle aren't, aren't iniquity, but it, for this illustration, they'll they'll come up closer and closer and then you can jump and these cattle scatter. It's just that effect of God arising, waiting for the right moment, for his timing. And we can get ahead of the Lord sometimes, but those cattle will just scatter like chicken feathers. And that day is going to come for the wicked eventually. One of the things I see or, you know, you can ask ourselves, what are the implications of the resurrection? What are the, the ramifications of that to us? One of the things we see in the events of Scripture is that when God does a work, um, we don't always see the greatness of it. His work can be such an astounding thing, but that, that when it happens, we don't even, we don't realize it or we're surprised by the very thing he has said. And in the case of Jesus, look how often he spoke concerning his, uh, his future. Yes, he would be killed, he would be persecuted, but then often he would say he would rise again. Somehow that part was hid from the disciples. They did, not, they did not see the rise again part. They did not ask him about that. They were only concerned about him dying. 
and they would become sorrowful in those situations or offended at the Lord. In Mark 9, 31, 32, again, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men and they shall kill him and after that he is killed, he shall rise again the third day. He spoke openly of this. Somehow it seems like their minds were veiled. It says they understood not that saying and were afraid to ask him. We have Jesus speaking to the two men after his resurrection in his risen state. O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And he expounded to them in all the scripture. Now this was the, the event we refer to as on the road to Emmaus. And last evening, uh, we had another meeting here and another song was led and the song was abide with me tis eventide the day is past and gone i didn't realize it at the time but that song was written based on the events here in um, this account where jesus meets up on the road to emmaus with these two disciples and talks to them and walks with them the words of the song say, Abide with me, tis eventide. Thy walk today with me has made my heart within me burn as I commune with thee. Thy earnest words have filled my soul and kept me near thy side. And then in that story, those men invited Jesus to their abode. They said it is toward evening, the night is coming, the day is far spent. A beautiful picture of, of Jesus showing himself after his resurrection. Does our time and our presence with Jesus produce that burning in our heart? Well, I'd like to look at maybe one more reference here this morning. 2 Corinthians 4. 6 through 11. Second Corinthians 4, 6 through 11. How do we cope with the darkness, the evil that rises up in our hearts? And I think the way we do that is we just flood the zone with light. We flood it with life and strength from the Lord. In verse... Seven. I'm just going to start there. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. And then he says, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. He, he lists a number of problems and troubles, but the thing to note here is that the trouble, it, it has a limit. It only has a measure of how it can afflict us we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. 
always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. As I read that, I thought of, yes, we, we love to talk about the life of God that is within us, the power of the resurrection. Yes and amen, that is true. But it says we are also bearing about the death of Jesus as well in our life. The dying of the Lord Jesus. Not sure what all that means or pertains to. But I think there's, there's a, a process or a principle in which Jesus suffering and death and that resurrection, that whole scenario is taking place in our experience on a smaller scale in a variety of levels, you could say, in our Christian wall. This is not cause for despair. I'd like to read the last two verses of this chapter. It says, For which cause we faint not. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Not week by week. Not from occasion to occasion, but day by day. For our light affliction, which is not, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. There's, there's triumph, there's hope, there's beauty, there's blessing, there's power in the name of Jesus. And yet we, we face that struggle of darkness that wants to creep in and, and cloud our spirits. And so often that's where the, where the, uh, the problem, the confusion, the perplexity comes from is, is knowing how to, to deal with these uh, powers that be, outwardly or inwardly. I like to look yet at an Old Testament blessing that Jacob pronounced upon his son Joseph, his beloved son Joseph. We think of Joseph as being a, a type of Christ in, in many ways. He delivered the people. He was forsaken of his brethren. He was persecuted of his brethren. And when he appeared to them, when he made himself known to them, I had to think of this this morning, it's a little bit like when Jesus appeared to his disciples after his resurrection. They were, they were scared. Maybe they were thinking, is Jesus going to um, repay us for having forsaken us? Who are we now before him? And the brothers certainly said that concerning Joseph as he made himself known. So Jacob comes to the end of his life. He pronounces blessing on all his sons. Some of the blessing was a little more of a reproach because of the way they had lived their lives. But of Joseph, I notice here in, in Genesis 49, verse 22, he, he speaks at length. He speaks more about Joseph perhaps than the others. And it's, it's all blessing. It's all goodness. He says, Joseph is a fruitful bough, 
even a fruitful bough by a well whose branches run over the wall. We see a thing of beauty, a thing of abundance, of provision by a well is something that gives water, life-giving water. A beautiful picture. But then he says, the archers have sorely grieved him and shot at him and hated him. They've done that. You think of archery. What is a bow and arrow? The arrow that flieth by day. Think Psalm 91. An arrow is something with intent, especially in the daytime. It's not just a random um, act, normally. Now, sometimes we get caught in, in the crossfire, you could say, of, of problems and, and uh, wrong intents. But the thing I see about the arrow is it usually has an intent behind it. You know, our suffering, is it, is it worse or better if it was with intent or not? If someone is purposely trying to cause us harm and hurt, I think we accept it a little better if it was an accident. But if it was with intent, it makes it worse. And Joseph probably sensed that. He went through that. And maybe we sense that in our own life, the archers. Maybe we feel those arrows. Maybe we feel that hate. But I like verse 24. It says, his bow abode in strength. His bow abode in strength. That's powerful. That's the call for us. I like the simplicity of that. It doesn't necessarily give ten steps for success. It just says his bow abode in strength. And the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. I see that as a call upon our lives. How do we acquire that power and that strength and that bow that Joseph had in that picture? It was a weapon of sorts. He had the authority and the strength to to shoot back, as it were, in that picture. But where is the resurrection power in our life? Well, for this, those of us who have um, been saved, we continue to seek the presence of the Lord. That is the power of God. Jesus said, I am the resurrection. That means his presence is the resurrection. His presence is the power. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so along with his presence, we have provision. We have peace. I'm going to read verse 26 yet of this chapter in Genesis. The blessings of thy father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors. Under the utmost bound of the everlasting hills, they shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him that was separate 
from his brethren. That's separate from his brethren could take you down some different roads, but I think it simply means set apart. He was distinguished. And he was separate from them physically as well. But there was a reuniting of that relationship. We were called to be set apart. We were distinguished in many ways from that which is around us. And in all of that, I think we seek to reconcile. We bring, seek to bring back that which was lost. And to claim back the territory of the wicked. Take back that which the locusts have taken in our lives. So I trust today you are walking in the power and the strength of that resurrection.